in coming into the hall this morning and just taking a moment to arrive with you all. It's very tangibly clear that you've been practicing now for a little while. Most of you a week at least and some have been here for longer. And there's a quality of steadying, of deepening, of softening, of widening, of opening that is quite directly and immediately perceptible in the, in the space, in the field, in the shared realm of our practice here. And so again I have the privilege really to offer some reflections to you from what it might be, what it seems to myself might be useful for you to hear. And of course there's this kind of curious thing where Actually, I've spoken to some of you, which is lovely, and I haven't spoken with others, and that's also fine. So I don't know exactly where you are, beyond what I might sense in the room and here in your conversations, interviews. This practice that we're engaged in, The Buddha spoke of it as the direct path to the end of suffering and discontent. The direct path to liberation, to realization, to transformation. And there's something for me that's always helpful about just coming back to that simple affirmation of what is possible for us as human beings and what has been revealed as possible through the teachings and the teachers, the women and the men and the human beings of all genders who throughout the ages have practiced this path, have realized this path, have shared this path. so that we too find it open and available here for us. And it's good to remember the, really the blessedness of this and I enjoy just taking a few moments before offering reflections to, in the traditional way, express my appreciation, my gratitude, my real debt, I would say, to the to the Buddha, to the awakened beings of all times and realms. Because it's not easy to do this, that we're doing here, that you're engaged in. It's challenging to face, to, in a sense, go against the habits, the patterns, the tendencies, the conditionings, that when not addressed, when not attended to skillfully, inevitably urge, direct or carry us 
in our life in ways that do not serve what we're most interested in. And in some ways we can see that this practice of being wakeful, of cultivating what is wholesome and beautiful and blessed in our hearts and our minds, that this practice is is a going against the stream or the current or the, the habit of the world. It's like that old saying that goes something like, only dead fish always swim with the tide. And what it means to be truly awake here is to recognize that if we simply allow ourselves to be carried, we'll be carried away. And so we, in a sense, by practicing wakefulness, we're equally practicing what it means to be alive, fully, wholeheartedly, courageously, and sensitively alive in all of what that might mean and might offer for ourselves and for our world. And the Buddha spoke of this again. Wakefulness is the path to the deathless. Amara Dhamma. Those who are unconscious and asleep, he said, they live as if already dead. And to simply be repeating the habits of the past, the past that is dead and gone, the patterns, the conditionings, the perceptions and views that come from the past, is to have already succumbed to that that we could call death. Not the physical death of our body, but the loss of the spark of aliveness and wakefulness. And of course, we know this. I trust we know this. That's why we chose to come here for weeks or months or longer rather than going on a holiday to somewhere sunny and warm where they regularly offer you sort of pleasant experiences to choose from. We chose to come here. And it's not to say there aren't pleasant experiences here as well. The food, the sunshine, sometimes the rain we can perhaps delight in. And yet we can also reflect on the way the Buddha spoke of this path. And I'm always struck by the languaging. And bearing in mind that the languaging has been often translated in certainly the early translations through a a group of very wonderful but nonetheless very English Victorian middle class folk and bless them because they offered something amazing to the world by doing what they did but they did it through the lens of their own conditioning and they couldn't have done it otherwise so the language and how we've internalized the language is something we can sometimes really helpfully reflect on. And one of the, and I don't think this is, a, the, the English middle class academics who are trans, Victorian academics who tran, did the first translations into English have any responsibility for this particular metaphor. But the Buddha spoke about the training, the taming, the transforming of our mind as if this would be like, or compared it to what it would be like as a warrior to face 1,000 opponents on 1,000 battlefields a thousand times. That's a lot of battles. A thousand times a thousand times a thousand. It's like, whew, okay, 
that gives me some perspective for my experience. And it's also quite sort of fierce in a sense. We get that sense of that metaphor. And I think it's really helpful to reflect on what it would be, what it is for us to have had the particular cultural heritage that most people who've had a Western or a European upbringing or cultural context will have received through that, the modern Western mindset. When we hear this kind of an image or a metaphor through, through our conditioning and habitual self-views that often result in a conclusion that we're not okay, that we're not good enough, that we only by some kind of performative success can redeem ourselves from our otherwise hopeless or worthless condition. When we, when we come into that into this practice and hear teachings such as a warriorship or engaging in a battle, we very easily find ourselves engaged in a battle with ourselves, trying too hard, pushing too much. A friend and colleague who I taught with for many years in America, Rodney Smith, he, he once observed, and it's, I don't know if this needs a trigger warning, but I'll just name that in case it might for you. You know, he said that his observation of practitioners in the early years, he said, trying so hard to get their minds to be quiet, it's like concentration camps. And I know that's a charged metaphor to use, and my own father and his parents were in a concentration camp in Ukraine. And so, I don't use it lightly, but the way we can sometimes oppress ourselves, I think sometimes it's good to have quite strong language and images and metaphors to invite us to address this, to liberate ourselves. My father and his parents escaped and survived, and uh, this is also the invitation here to escape, we could say, the prison of our conditioned habits. And I remember when I was in my sort of in the early years of practice and in Asia quite a lot in India, going to a retreat with a, a very well known and beloved and respected teacher who was of Indian ethnic heritage and in a sort of a retreat with several hundred people practicing very enthusiastically, intensely and they were probably about 98% were also of Indian ethnic heritage and uh, there were a few others, myself as a European and one, my roommate who was from the Far East, I think Japanese. We didn't speak so I wasn't sure but that's the sense I had from him. Or maybe we did speak at the end and I just can't quite trust my memory. Anyway, I think he was Japanese. And I remember his jandals had A-I on them. That was his initials. And I thought, A-1. He was a, he was a nice guy to share a room with. Uh, Atushi. It's all coming back. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've remembered his name for 20 years or more. It was over 30 years ago we practiced together. But what I noticed and what was really interesting is that the messaging was really strong. Like, you must do this. You have to do this. You may not do that. You will not do that. On one occasion, I opened my eyes during a meditation and someone came up to me and very angrily said, how can you meditate with your eyes open? And it was like, I was kind of like, whoa, okay, what's happening here? 
I breathed out and I restrained myself from the comment that arose in me, which was, how did you see me with your eyes closed? (laughs) But I didn't say it. I felt, okay, that's good. And yet I really reflected on what was being given to us as a message. And there were two... um, I was quite young in my mid-twenties, but even younger than myself... Uh, women, I think, from Scandinavia who'd arrived at a similar time and they left partway through. It was very, very intense. And I actually thought, good on them, if this isn't working for you, that you could make that call. But what I also noticed, and it was really interesting, was that the vast majority of the people there, myself, my fr- myself and Atushi, we were, we were doing it like we were told. It was like, whoa. But a lot of the the local folk were wandering around rather casually, chatting a bit, hanging out, sort of seemed pretty relaxed. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. The pattern and the tendency of the people of that culture, not universally, just as our culture isn't universal to everyone here, but their pattern in that context and certainly in religious practice is much more relaxed. It's much more, oh yeah, I'll see if I feel like it and maybe I'll do some. And so I kind of got the sense of, ah, oh, that's why the teacher's going at it like this. Because if you don't say it that strongly, they're not going to bother. But for Westerners who are already trying too hard before you give them a single instruction, that's not what they need. It seems to me. And I just want to say it, that's no criticism of the Indian culture to say that people were very relaxed. This isn't about my genealogy, but I am quarter Bengali and... My grandmother, who is... Actually, this is about my family now, sorry. Yeah, she's 106 and amazing, but she's been practicing since she was 50. She's like, I met her 30 years ago, and she'd already been practicing 20 years meditation with her teacher. And, um, and she's really dedicated, but she's also very relaxed about it. And it's very interesting to see how different that was to how I approached it when I basically turned up at her house and I would go up onto the roof and see if I could sit cross-legged on the concrete roof without a cushion because that's probably going to be good for me, isn't it? And it really was painful. So for many of us, I think there's a, a real value in considering what does this mean for my practice and how I practice because the tendency to try too hard is something ingrained into most of us. And if that's not the case for you, that's fine. But do check it out. To give some significant emphasis to gentleness, to non-efforting, to listening to where our limits might be. And I remember talking with one of my, my colleagues and who was also one of my first teachers And he said, you know, we should have images of the Buddha sitting in a chair. Because if he'd grown up in our world, he would have sat in a chair. And uh, he was sitting in a chair and able to tell the story of the fact that his teachers, as my early teachers in Asia, said, just sit there. Don't move. It's just sensations. Don't move. It's just sensations. And then at some point you realize you've injured yourself. Because it wasn't just sensations. It was a signal saying, pay attention and see if there's some care needed here and that our teachers then had had grown up sitting cross-legged on the floor watching you know reading books having their meals chatting with their friends they did it all cross-legged their bodies were quite happy there ours needed more time to adjust 
So the sense of softening around some of the, the subtle or not so subtle attitudes and images we have easily internalized within this tradition and others, I think is a really helpful sort of area of attention that applies in all the ways and forms we might be practicing. And at the same time, this isn't to take away or to lose sight of the, the real need, the imperative for a wholehearted engagement to really apply oneself to one's practice with the fullness of commitment and dedication that is possible for us. But without, or finding at least if possible, some space around the way we might tighten in that or harden in that, or pressure ourselves in that. And I remember some few years ago reflecting on this, the, the martial image of the, you know, one, uh, when I was a young man, I was like, whoa, 1,000 warriors, 1,000 times, 1,000 battlefields, bring it on. And, um, and now I look at it and go, oh gosh, I probably could have saved myself and people around me some trouble there. And I, I was reflecting on this a, a few years ago, and I realized, oh, well, the Buddha was from the warrior caste of, of his time. So, of course, he might use a warrior martial image. But I wondered, so what if he came from the Brahmin caste, the priestly caste? Maybe he would have said practices like one, doing, of making 1,000 devotional offerings and prayers in 1,000 temples 1,000 times. And I thought, Oh, that's got a whole different feeling to it for me. It's still a lot to be done. Still a lot of engagements, but it's like, oh, that. Or maybe if he was a, if he was from the um, the the merchant class, and maybe it'd be like doing a thousand business transactions with a thousand crafty merchants. And our mind can be a pretty crafty merchant sometimes when it tries to sell a thousand times. And it's like, oh yeah, I can. And again, that's got a whole different sense to it. I respond, I feel my heart, my body, my mind. Oh, okay, yeah. It's no less of an undertaking, but it's got a different feel. Or if from the, from the lower caste community, if the Buddha had come from there, he might have said, so it could be like cleaning 1,000 toilets in 1,000 mansions 1,000 times. And it's like, yeah, I can see that for my mind at times. And again, a different feeling to it. And there, of course, could be many more ways we could frame it. And yet within all of that, what's critical, it seems to me, is that wholesome, skillful, right effort here, the application of our energy and our effort directed towards the development and the discovery of what is possible for us is to be engaged and wholeheartedly, but without self-investment in the result or on the outcome. And if you notice yourself measuring your practice in any way, pay careful attention to this. Am I doing it as well as the other people? That's a common one. Am I doing it as well as I did it in the past? And we might notice what our attention does with those measurements. Or we measure other people. Are they doing it as well as others? But mostly the comparison is in relationship to ourselves. And notice the effect of that when we start to measure and compare. These are the fundamental building blocks 
of the sense of solidified and in a way deadened self-sense that is constructed by the urge to become something other than what we are. And without being invested in an a result without getting too caught up in the measuring, which doesn't mean that it isn't useful to notice where there are shifts, movements, developments, transformations. Of course, all of that is part of practice. Then it's, huh, the breath is deepening, the mind is settling, the heart is opening, the world is softening, dissolving. Whatever we notice, of course. But when we start to go, is it quite as much as it was last time? Or I wonder if that other person over there has got the same thing going on? All of that. To really put it down. Without judgment of it. It's going to go on in your mind some of the time, I suspect, for most of us, if not all. But to notice it. As Ajahn Chah, a much-loved meditation teacher and master of Dharma practice who lived in the Thai forest in the 20th century, he said, the proper, proper effort is to be mindful, aware and awake in each moment, to make each activity of the day a meditation and part of your practice. So the, the effort, rather than trying to force in any given moment, it's more like, can I extend this intentionality? Can I allow this to flow into every corner and crevice of my heart, my mind, my body, and my day? Whether it be a primary orientation towards stilling and steadying and stabilizing the mind, allowing that to include all of this. Likewise, if it's more, we're more working in a heart-opening orientation, of course the heart is not separate from the whole body or the space around it. An energetic sense of opening includes everything. And likewise the cultivation and the orientation more towards wisdom, inquiry, curiosity. Include everything. The places we don't include is where our habits and our blindness or our, I use that word habitually, it's my own blindness. It's not a good word to use for ignorance. So I'm sorry if that for anyone is something that is part of their own experience. I don't mean to add a pejorative flavor to that word. But where our unconsciousness maintains and sustains and replicates itself is in the places where we don't give attention. So what we see, of course, is that our patterns on a retreat are quite similar to the patterns we might have in our lives. It's a little bit embarrassing at times to realize that actually we don't come here and become suddenly someone different, this very sort of spiritual meditator. We might feel like that sometimes, and that's fine. But in fact, what's most fundamental, it seems to me, in the way the practice works, is that we simply replicate all the unskillful habits of our life, but in a context where by doing them in the midst of our meditation practice, we start to see them. And we start to develop the capacities and the tools 
to handle them, to disentangle from them, to understand what their roots are and how to free ourselves from their power. But they'll show up. And yet to meet them in that spirit of, okay, this is here to be seen, to be handled, and ultimately to be transformed, but not to be judged or rejected. And I just found it remarkably, in a sense, it's, a, it's remarkably humbling. And there's a kind of relief in that to see, you know, when I'm on retreat, I still can't help going to the notice board and looking at it several times a day. You know, and I joke about this and I talk with, other, you know, when I'm teaching, I often reflect on this. It's like, it's so, there's something compelling about there might be something there for me, like a note or maybe some other juicy, useful, important or crucial piece of information that wasn't there 10 minutes ago. And it's like, huh, look at that. The way we seek comfort, reassurance or information that will help us control our experience. We seek it from the outer world. We also seek it in the way we tend to try and interpret our inner experience. So part of that comparing and measuring that we do with our experience is to try and from that get some information that will allow us to determine better how to handle, control or manipulate our experience or the results of our practice. And again, there's a value to seeing and understanding quite precisely what's happening because that can and does and will inform skillful choices in our practice to say, should I keep leaning here? Should I back off a little bit? Should I open this territory up that's coming or should I just put it down and stay with my initial intention? All those things are served with that particularity and precision of attention. But at the same time, noticing where there's a sense of, as I said, wanting to use this either for self-construction or for self-protection or self-advancement equally. All of which in the end are not really going to serve our deepest well-being. But if we engage in them and notice it, of course that will serve our deeper well-being. So always again here, yes, it will happen and we notice it. And when we notice it, possibilities open up here. And again, some lightness with it, you know, to see how strongly we seek comfort, reassurance and that which will kind of, in a way, soften this occasion, not that it's always so, but soften what can sometimes be the quite raw or tender encounter with our life here. And I, I always remember the story of uh, um, it was told at the end of the, the first month-long retreat I sat at Guy House at the old place in Denbury about over 30 years ago now. And at least one of you was there, so you might remember the story. Um, but this yogi told about how through the whole retreat, on certain days, they found themselves walking out to a certain part of the grounds where the laundry was hanging. And initially they were mystified as to why this was going on. And, and this, this yogi, they described eventually, they said, and then I realized, when I paid more careful attention, I was going to look at my husband's underwear. <laughs> and it was just this very sweet, said, oh, of course, what we get sort of a sense of connection or comfort or 
it, it didn't sound particularly saucy. It was more like just, ah, you know. And this, their husband was on the retreat too, which obviously that's how the underwear came to be there on the laundry days. <laughs> they hadn't brought it with them, I don't imagine. But, but just, it's just like, it just was just so human in that. And yet she said, and once I realized that, I started to say, okay. You know, when I noticed myself wandering over to that part of the garden, oh, what's going on here? And what's interesting to notice is that trying hard for some of us is how we feel comfortable. We feel more comfortable when pushing ourselves. And there's a real discomfort in allowing ourselves to be less forceful, less hard, less pushing. And in that we might have to face our, our fear of, of non-achievement, of non-success, of non, not being the, the great yogi that we imagine we might have to be here. So it's interesting that in fact taking the gentle option for some of us may actually be the harder choice. So that's where the real challenge is. It's not in the kind of the more warrior mode. It's more in, oh, actually the warrior finds it really hard to put down their sword and sort of make some porridge or whatever might be a very different sort of thing than going into battle. It's like, oh, okay. That's what, and what's really interesting with our tendencies and our patterns is that if we have a tendency, well, we all have tendencies, but if we had a particular tendency and we notice it, when we try and find balance, because of being used to, being familiar and habituated with our normal over-leaning too much in one direction, the point of balance will inevitably feel out of balance to begin with. It's like if we always carried our head over here, and I do a little bit carry my head this side, I think habitually, unconsciously. When we bring it to the center, it feels like it's gone too far this way. The urge is to keep going back there. So we have to sit also with the uncertainty and the slight uncomfortableness of not knowing if this is the balance point. But that piece, when I, I remember when I understood, oh, being upright feels off balance to the left that I realize I have to find a place that feels just a little off balance to the left and then when I go to the mirror it tells me I'm upright. We don't always have that mirror that we can check with, with patternings. But just the willingness to err a little on the side that we don't tend to lean to is a risk worth taking. And if it turns out we have gone too far that way, it's okay. We can come back from that. So within this, there's an element of what we could call surrender. To our experience, to our circumstance, to our limitations, and actually also to our possibilities. 
We don't often think of surrendering to our potential. But surrendering in that context is, in a sense, trusting it and allowing it to find its way to fruition. Not feeling that we somehow have to take hold of it and make it happen. And, you know, in the initial period of time, when we come on a, a retreat, it can be really helpful to follow the schedule. Just, And so many people, you know, speak about, it's great to not have to think about what I'm going to do next. And particularly when we arrive, our minds can be full of all kinds of ideas about what we should do, what we could do, how much of it we need to do. And just giving ourselves to a, a form can be really a relief and a release. It kind of limits our opportunities for escape, essentially. Where we start to configure our choices as a way of either avoiding what's uncomfortable or manufacturing what is more familiar and comfortable in our experience. So it can be really powerful and useful in that way. And for some, this is perhaps what you will have been doing. And it's also really important to remember that the schedule, you know, we just made it up. Really. Somewhere else they'll make it up differently. It'll look quite different. And the Buddha never had a watch, so I can't imagine he ever wrote or would have thought about something like that. One of my teachers who I, who I practiced with, there was a Burmese master, you know, his... I never went to a centre in Burma, but I remember hearing about it. He said, they just had a big room. You go in there. You sit until you finish sitting. You get up and at the back you walk until you finished walking. And you stand for a while if you need to stand or want to stand. And then you sit down again. And it's like no one's got a clock. No one's saying how long the sitting. or the. It's like we're just practicing. So in one sense, one of the beautiful and powerful elements of a personal retreat structure is that you can start to see, oh, would it be useful here to just sustain this period of practice, standing or sitting or walking, or just staying in this location, and some of it standing, some of it sitting, not walking in the meditation hall, but nonetheless having the possibility to change posture and continue. So that we actually start to see what serves most deeply here is our own careful, attentive exploration of what happens if I do it this way. Not what's the right way, what's the best way. Surely someone else knows the, the only way and I haven't quite got there yet. It's like, no, what happens if I do it this way? if I choose to extend a period of sitting. Or if I say, actually, today I'm not going to stay in one posture for very long at all. I just want to move as soon as the body's uncomfortable. I'll very slowly and mindfully adjust it. And it's really interesting how that can sometimes take the pressure out of the posture situation to know as soon as it's uncomfortable, I'll change. It doesn't have to be very uncomfortable or unbearable. I'll just move as soon as... It's comfortable, as, as it's uncomfortable. And just see what happens there. And for someone else for whom that's the normal response, which is fine, they might say, oh, this time I think I'll just stay with the discomfort again and see what happens. 
see if it's useful. With explorations like this, the interesting thing is that if it turns out to be useful, great, it was useful. If it turns out not to be useful, huh, we've learned something. Hey, great, that's useful. And this is how we learn to guide our practice. And so the surrender that I'm speaking about here is not a passivity. There's actually a considerable amount of effort required, engagement required to not just be carried by our conditioning. And uh, to see, as I said, these tendencies in the heart and mind, and you probably have heard about or encountered the, you know, the classic relational expressions of the, 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 what are understood to be the, you know, the, the, the root tendencies of the unawakened mind of, of, of greed, craving, of hatred, aversion, and of delusion and confusion, and the, the, the craving arising in the form of an attraction to someone else that we used to call a Vipassana romance. It's like you don't know who they are, you don't know anything about them, but the way they put their slippers together at the end of the ramp, are just, it's just so touching and sweet. And, and, and one just finds one's attention going there, you know, and, and of course this person hasn't a clue. But um, it's, it's like we start to think, oh gosh, I like this person. And then, then, then at lunchtime it seems they appear in the queue right behind us. It's, like, it's a sign. And this whole construction starts to build and we, you know, this whole fantasy can create itself. And then, of course, a moment of mindfulness and wakefulness intervenes where my mind, look what it does. But it's like, yeah, see, these patterns of human attraction, they can show up. And, of course, in the other form too, which is the, what we call you know, the Vipassana enemy or the Vipassana vendetta, someone who just keeps leaving their shoes in my way or the way they move in the meditation hall is just not right. You know, I'm sure I'd be fully awakened if they didn't keep doing that strange thing they do. And we can build a whole story up about them. And then maybe at another point we see them walking really beautifully and something in us is touched. We realize, oh my gosh, look at their practice. Look at this person. And we can, again, the whole construct just dissolves and we, we see these urges. And there's, there's another one which is less commonly spoken about, which is really useful to be aware of. It's the, it's the vipassana, geni vipassana genius and it's oneself. Sometimes the mind starts to get super creative, have all these amazing ideas, how to solve the problems of the world or the circumstances of my life or incredible screeds of creative poetry and screenplays and it's going to be a great movie when we make it and it just pours out of us and it might be genuinely beautiful creative expression and I think the only time I really consistently write poetry is when I'm on retreat and it's fine if that sort of thing comes but notice where again there's that kind of wow this is great I'm great usually by the end of the retreat or a few days after I look at it I think mm, I like it but I'm not sure I'm going to publish this. Or it speaks to me, but I don't need it to speak to the world. So noticing this kind of 
these areas that arise are really helpful. And noticing how we learn to handle them. To see, to understand, to, in a compassionate but also courageous way, actually, no, this is not what I wish to give myself to. I see why it arises in me, but I do not choose to give myself to this. And notice again, particularly if you have aversion to or judgment of time spent caught in hindrances and reactivity, distractedness and drowsiness and agitation and confusion or doubt, it's important to see these and work skillfully with them, of course. But notice if there's some way in which we reject them as experiences or use them to measure ourselves or our practice. Because it is the natural course of development and deepening in practice that these particular forces and energies will be, in a sense, shaken loose into our consciousness at some point, in some way, at some time. And to meet them from the understanding that, ah, this is to be handled rather than to be taken as a measurement of self. Which is where we most struggle with them. It's like, I thought my practice was okay, but it turns out I'm a hopeless meditator because here am I after a whole week and I'm still drowsy or agitated or full of craving or aversion or confusion. But no, that's actually part of how the practice works. To see also, as well as our aversion to what we might call the experience of the hindrances, to see also the way we might grasp towards spiritual experiences. Ah, yes, of course, we wish for these. Of course we do, and rightly so, because they're wholesome and beautiful and transformative. And the grasping that arises in the sense of not just that's nice or beautiful or powerful, but I have experienced this. I have attained this. I have realized these states, these insights. And to notice what happens when we hold them or take them with a, with a kind of a self-serving conclusion around the development and the fruition of our practice. And with this, it's, you know, it's really important that we do engage in cultivating and developing these possibilities for ourselves as practitioners here and to appreciate them and, and likewise to recognize and honor what creativity, what clarity might arise and notice the tendency to start to make an identity out of these and that bondage and the limitation and the entanglement that that produces. So here we are, deep in the retreat already. For some, the middle, for others, well into the body of it, deep into our practice. And sometimes, of course, we find things have unfolded, settled, opened, softened, 
widened, deepened. In a way in which you think, hmm, yeah, nice. I like it here. And we can just subtly start to cruise a little bit. It's like, you know, I, we come with the aspiration to awaken for the liberation of all beings, but actually just being comfortable for the next little while will be okay by me. And it's a, it's a sometimes just a quiet but pernicious sort of, hmm, oh yeah. The last time I did that, it was kind of nice, wasn't it? Let's do that again and again and again. And we kind of just get caught in a bit of an eddy within the current and the flow of our practice. We were kind of going round a little bit. And it might be nice, we can relax. It's not like we need to be going over the rapids all the time or swimming upstream all the time. There's a place for the digesting and the, in a way, allowing the understandings and the developments in our practice to, to touch us by, by abiding in in the knowing of, in the feeling of, in the sensing of, in the experiencing of what has opened up for us, in whatever ways. And that sense of also coming back then to what's important in my life and in my practice. And, you know, the, again, without trying to trigger some kind of striving or unskillful, unbalanced forcing or efforting, at the same time, you know, this is a rare and precious opportunity, as the Buddha spoke of it. This fortunate human rebirth, this opportunity here to, to practice with Sangha, with teachings, to hear the Dharma, to practice the Dharma with the support of Gaia House, to use this well. And as one of my teachers, when he was asked, you know, how can I deepen my practice? His answer was simple. He said, eat less, sleep less, sit more. Now, I'd adjust that a little bit. I'd say, look at your eating habits. Look at your sleeping habits. Practice as much as you can. Because it's not just sitting. And if our habit with food is to deny ourselves enough nourishment, it might be what deepens our practice is taking a little more. And if we're staggering around on three hours sleep because we're practicing hard, and I've done that, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes a good long rest is exactly what we need. So we have to see what's there. And so, I continue to wish you very well in your practice and uh, in the Buddha's words, to be a lamp unto yourselves. One of the last things he said to his followers, to be a lamp unto yourselves. To bring warmth and light, this means speaks to me, to bring warmth and light to your heart, your mind, your body, and to your own path here. This inner lamp of wakefulness, mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness, 
This is the path. And here you are. Let's see what's possible. May your practice here, each of you on your own and all together, may your practice be for your own deepest well-being and for your awakening. For the welfare and the awakening of all beings. For the well-being of all that lives and all that is. <coughs> 